think of the epistles of John, a fancy word for letters, the letters that John the Apostle wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to think of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John as email messages, uh, 1 John would be select all and a mass email to everybody on the list. 2 John is directed to a specific church fellowship as if John were writing to this church. 3 John is the shortest epistle in the New Testament that is in the Greek language, and that is addressed to an individual person. Uh, and, and so we take a look this morning at 2 John. And in these messages, all three of these communications, John is addressing, of course, the battle for truth, the gospel truth, God's word that reveals himself, to us and the way to be saved. That we are, as Jude put it, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The key there is once and for all entrusted. It is the truth and it was the truth and it will be the truth forever. So since it is, listen, the truth that saves you, it's important to recognize it and live it and love it and proclaim it and guard it. It's really a battle for the heart and soul of Christianity and as such a battle for the souls of men and women. And when the ship's going down, no one wants the imitation life jackets or the phony lifeboats, right? You want the real deal. And the gospel is the real deal. Mess with the gospel and you've got something phony and you will not be able to be saved. So one way, the enemy, the adversary, which is what the word devil means, one way he destroys is to offer alternative spiritual truths or religions or to keep the form of Christianity, but tweak it ever so subtly so that we could empty it, the gospel that is, of its saving power, which would prevent souls from entering eternal life. And if you've already entered and then embrace a false way, you will be hindered ineffective and unproductive. And so uh, in John's first letter, you'll recall then, this truth that saves us has three essential uh, qualities about it. And really quickly, it was um, that, first of all, the truth test. You must be worshiping the true Jesus. There are many Jesus out there. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said, there are going to be many Jesus out there. Many Christ, you better have the right one. The God-man, born of a virgin. God in a human body, dying on the cross for your sins of the world. You better have the biblical Jesus or, or you don't have the right Jesus. Secondly, was the moral test that walking with God, you know that you've come to know the true God if your life is being morally transformed. If you claim to know the good God, then that good God is spilling over in good behavior. You can't say, I know the good God and live a bad life consistently as a pattern. Impossible, says John. And thirdly, 
It was the love test. If we've come to know the God of love, who in essence is love itself, then we must live in a habitual pattern of not human love, but the supernatural agape love that we've talked about. Our lives must be dominated by this supernatural love for God, uh, his word, his people, and one another. And so now Second John is different in this. He wants to write to a particular church about a particular problem. Uh, they were in love, hosting and opening their homes to itinerant preachers, meaning traveling ministers and missionaries, who were false. They were the bad guys. They had false ideas, and they were, they were representing uh, and, and proclaiming uh, the phony life jackets. And they were opening their homes to them and supporting them and enabling them and bringing them into the church because that's just a Christian thing to do, to be kind and loving and tolerant of everybody. And so John is going to have to school them in this error because uh, they were opening their homes up and creating a vulnerability to deception. So Second John is about addressing that problem. Third John, interesting, Second John's, the letter to that one particular church, it would seem, got intercepted. That at first they didn't get it because of a bad boy elder named Diotrephes who doesn't like John and doesn't submit to his authority. It's all about him. And so 3 John is John's attempt to get around the troublemaker in the church and get to a faithful member to instruct that church on the right way to support and the right way to show discernment in your love and in your hospitality. We're going to talk about bad boy Diotrephes next week, and the issues of 3 John this week is 2 John. And now... You know, wonderful thing about Second John and Third John, really give us some great insight to how it was to be a Christian 2,000 years ago. Surprisingly, the crazy thing is that though 2,000 years have elapsed, not much is different. You're going to find that, wow, we have similar people and similar problems in the church today. Let's take a look at all 13 verses of Second John. Verse 1, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. 
Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. So 2 John, kind of as I mentioned, the little postcard to a church fellowship, really divides nicely into two uh, ideas which we can consider this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, truth expressing itself in love. And number two, love expressing itself in discernment. So let's take a look at truth expressing itself in love. There was love in this church, and that was partially the problem. There was love, but it was an immature variety. It was a love and a Christianity that needed to be matured, grown up, not so naive, but thinking. A love that discerns, doesn't just roll over and accept everybody and everything. It thinks. And so because they are loving and sincere-hearted Christians wanting to do the right thing, it got them into trouble. So John has to address that. Now, it's really important to understand the problem by understanding the context because the gospel spread in the ancient world. The whole world was evangelized through the hospitality and support of believers. You've got to know that to understand the dire situation here. The church was strengthened. The word was preached. Churches were established all at the, on the basis of Christians opening up their homes. They, they didn't do hotels, and inns were very uh, irreputable. They were not the kind of places. They were few and far between, and those that did exist weren't the kinds of places that Christians would want to stay, which says, in parentheses, a lot for how the Savior of the world entered into uh, this human history. However, so... Uh, Paul, speaking to Philemon, as uh, you are, have recently um, uh, heard from Pastor Adam, who spoke from Philemon for two weeks in a row, you remember at the end of the epistle, he says, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you soon. That's how it went. Christians opened their home. The missionary came in. And from that base, churches were planted. Churches were strengthened. The gospel was preached. Evangelism meetings happened, but they had to have a base. And hospitality was God's ordained way for the gospel to preach. All Christians knew that. It didn't happen unless you opened your home. Just didn't happen. The first and second and third missionary journeys give evidence of this. You remember in Acts 16, the gospel comes for the, to the to Europe for the very first time in Philippi. Lydia opens her home to Paul, to Luke, to Silas, the whole team. And the entire town is evangelized. 
and the jailer is going to get saved and his family and, and churches are going to be planted. Elders are going to be appointed. Why? Lydia opened her home. And all through first, second, and third missionary journeys, Christians are opening their home. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, as he sent his people out to do ministry in his name, he said, whatever town you enter, search for a worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. That was the God-ordained way to spread the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what do we do? We put them up in hotels. He's staying in a nice hotel tonight and tomorrow night. Back in the day, we would have had him in our house. But we are enabling him by providing him a place to stay and rest and be with us. Or he wouldn't be here. Where would he be? Out in his car, you know? So this is how it worked. Jesus planned it that way. And not only was it an ordained method to spread the gospel, but hospitality was a commandment. Christians knew that. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Share with the Lord's people in need. Practice hospitality. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Well, we, we would grumble because, you know, you're opening your home. It's a lot of work sometimes to host people, you know. But they had rules, too code of ethics to open your home. They could never ask for money, and they could never stay for more than two days. There's a whole list of things that that, that document circulated. Everybody knew the rules of the road. But uh, offering hospitality is really what got them into trouble because, unfortunately, there were unscrupulous men, imposters, and posers, and heretics who took advantage of sincere believers. They'd come into town, they would say to somebody, oh, we really need a place to stay in. You know you have that guest room, and what are we going to do? The sun is setting, and we're so hungry. And the Christians, naive, Jesus said, that's what we are. He said, the children of this world, they're really shrewd. They know how to deal with the world. Better than the children of light. So that's why he said, hey, be wise. Be as wise as a servant, but meek as a dove. So we have to not just love with our emotions. We love thinking, using not just our heart, but with our mind and the brain that God gave us. And that's kind of what John is going to say in a more polite way than I just did, <laughs> using our brains. And we don't check them at the door. Amen. We keep them on at all times, or in, or however that would go. So these unscrupulous men would play and on the emotions and, and the command of hospitality. And, the, and as Paul said, they would worm their way into homes and upset entire families. Now they're in the home, and, and they're, they're saying things that are wrong about the gospel. And so John has to first refresh their memories as to what his biblical truth and love are really all about. And then he's going to get to the rebuke. And so, as you'll notice in verse 1, it says, the elder. Well, everybody knew who that was. That was John's nickname. 
It was like he was like the Pastor Chuck of the region. Everybody knew he's the old man. That's what the elder means. A senior who is worthy of respect. And so the, it's the old man writing to you, you know. And chosen lady, though some say it was actually a chosen lady, it really doesn't make sense with a chosen lady greeting another chosen lady and their children. Uh, it's more, it makes more sense that it's code an anonymous code that Christians had to use because of the illegality uh, of Christianity in the first century there was against the law. And so if the letter or the document fell into unfriendly hands, you could get into a lot of trouble. So the bride of Christ, the chosen lady, the bride, you know, to, to you, uh, chosen lady, the church, and talking about her children, would then be the members. Now, first he starts with a shout-out of the truth, because five times in four verses, he uses the, the word truth to let him know, listen, before we get started on what you're doing wrong, let's remind ourselves of what it's all about. Truth, 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 truth. In the Greek, aletheia. So he's going to give a shout-out about what the truth is is all about. Here's a paraphrase. Church, I love you all in the truth. I love all of you guys in the truth. It's not just me who loves you. Anyone and everyone who knows the truth loves you. In other words, and great insight, the gospel is the basis for our fellowship and the reason we love each other. We found the truth, or should I say the truth found us. We get it. We understand our hearts know the Lord, the way to be saved. And that knits us together in a wonderful way. Let me give you a testimony of, uh, from the trip. We were in Washington Square Park there in the middle of Manhattan. We had the prayer station up. It wasn't just unbelievers we were attracting. We attracted some Christians. And up comes a woman, an older woman uh, from Russia, from Moscow with her Russian-born granddaughter, who's 14 years old, both of them beaming, the Christian beaming. They were so happy to share their testimony with us. And here's what happened. Grandma, 10 years earlier, 10 years ago, was in a park with the four-year-old granddaughter at the time. Unsaved, didn't know the Lord at all. And the four-year-old was playing with another four-year-old girl who spoke only English. That four-year-old girl who spoke only English was the Calvary Chapel pastor missionary's daughter. So grandma was fascinated by a couple who would come to Moscow for a religious reason and went and talked to the pastor, the Calvary Chapel pastor and his wife. And they got invited to the church, and the woman gave her heart to the Lord and was filled with the Holy Spirit. She was so transformed. She said, oh, in broken English, all my life I've been to those big cathedrals and had emptiness in my heart. And I couldn't understand the gospel or the Bible and then suddenly I saw it was like a light came on and I was filled and the emptiness went away. And I tried sharing it with my daughter and her husband, but they didn't want anything to do with it. But I shared it with my four-year-old and she's 14, shining. 
she became a believer. The parents did not. They're walking through the park together because mom and dad emigrated from Russia, brought the girl, grandma's visiting, and they're walking hand in hand. Born again grandma, born again 14-year-old girl, and we all prayed for mom and dad who are resisting the gospel but gave uh, and allowed the, the grandma to lead the, the granddaughter to the Lord. That girl, that 14-year-old girl, beaming, talking about Jesus, saying, Jesus has changed my life. Grandma led me. Perfect English, perfect Russian. Grandma says, when she comes to Russia, all the churches use her because of her knowledge of the scriptures, her perfect English, and her perfect Russian. She translates for all the evangelists and all the pastors and all the missionaries. And she's just so mature, this young woman, 14 going on 20, and just so pleased to know us. Let me tell you, there was a love there. Pastor Ross, you come to Russia. You come to Moscow, I open my home, I make piroshki for you. <laughs> oh, man, I, <laughs> I want some of those piroshkis. <laughs> Listen, where did that love come? The truth got into grandma in Russia, got into granddaughter in Moscow. Now walking through the park, she sees all oh, the truth. We're knit together in truth because not only do we know something that's true, we know the essence of a person, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the truth incarnation, that that person, as the next verse says, comes into us, it's living. He says, it's alive in you, it will be with us forever. Listen to what your Lord said on the night he was betrayed in the upper room. He said, oh, okay, cheer up, everybody. I'm going, but you won't be left as orphans. I'm sending a person to you. Let me describe him to you. I will ask the Father. He will send you the helper. He will be with you forever. That's a long time. The spirit of truth. He called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. The world cannot know him, it can't accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him because he lives with you and will be in you. Now, okay, so John wants to say, listen, we're not running around saying, I know the truth. We do know things, but what do we know? We know God, we know how the world began, we know how it ends. Come tonight, you're going to hear a little bit more of that. We know the way to be saved. We know the way to make life work. We know that there's a, this is what the truth is. We know that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. We know there's a straight and narrow path that leads to life and few there be that find it, but broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go that way. We know a lot of stuff. But it's not that that separates us from the world. It's the living truth that has possessed us. At the time of our conversion, we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We opened our heart, and he says, The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, is in you. It raises us up from the dead. It's the essence of life. It's, it's how we know God. 
It's not that we're saying, you know, as Socrates said, and therefore I know the truth because I'm quoting some guy who said, this is the way it is. It's the truth itself found its way into my heart and transformed me and gives me the ability not only listen to know the truth, but to live the truth because it's alive. It's a power. It's a force. It's a person. And his name is Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate. On the day he gave his life for the sins of the world, Pontius Pilate said, oh, about the king thing, so you are a king, then I see. And Jesus answered and he said, indeed I am. For this reason I was born and came into the world that I might testify to the truth, and whoever's on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate says that infamous line, what is truth? And Jesus just goes, if you were, he didn't say this, but if Pilate had been on the side of truth, he would have heard Jesus. He would have heard the truth. There was no need to talk to Pilate because Jesus knew you're not on the side of truth. I just said, if you were on the side of truth, you would hear me, you would know me, you would know who I am, but you don't because you don't want to know the truth. You're not on the side of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. The truth that gives new life is eternal. It transforms us. It raises us from the dead, as I said. It gives us power over sin. The truth is a person. He's in us by his spirit, the spirit of truth. Now, just because we listened, we listened we heard it. We got it. We're on the side of truth. We may not have even liked what we heard, but it resonated in us. That's the truth. God is God. I'm a sinner. I'm destined for the grave and to hell to be punished rightly and justly for my sins. Who wants to hear that? That I'm a helpless, wicked sinner. But we heard it and we bought it because we're on the side of truth. And he says, you know, it comes with some bennies, grace and mercy and peace. In verse 3, grace, getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. And peace, the byproduct of both of those things working in us. If I'm getting what I don't deserve and I'm not getting what I do deserve, I can live in peace and the word there just means an overwhelming sense of wellness, peace, knowing, you know what? Because of grace and mercy, because I believe in the truth, I'm on the side of truth, and the truth lives in me, it's going to be okay. That's the peace that we enjoy. And so now, I spent a little bit more time than I should have there, but notice with me then something very interesting. A big chunk of that church he's writing to have defected. They left and went across town to the Gnostic Spiritual Center, where they're more progressive, more open-minded, more popular, more trendy, more spiritual. And listen to what he says. Love it, adopt it, because it's so healthy, and it will bless you. Look at his biblical perspective. It gives me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. You know what that means. But most of them are not. 
He says, some of them are, and with this I'm greatly rejoicing. Notice he didn't say this. It tears me up inside that a big chunk of the church got lured away across town to those false teachers. He didn't say that. He sees the redemptive thing that God is doing in his loss and in the struggle. He's looking for what's positive here, what good is happening. He says, you know what? I'm really happy. I'm really happy because some are reading their Bibles, underlining it. They're on their knees. They're not moved. Everybody's making fun of them. Oh, you old line fundamentalist. Oh, my word. You're still stuck in what's right and what's wrong. And oh, that's sinful. Oh, you guys should come over here. No, he says, some of them, some of you, you remain steadfast, immovable in the Lord. And I rejoice in that. How about you? You've got a lot of stuff going on in your life, like me. What are you greatly rejoicing in? Or are you like Eeyore? Oh, no, everything's going wrong. Everybody's going across town in the other church. <laughs> There's something good? There is. God is at work. Find something to greatly rejoice. You will do so much better. You'll be, you'll be up and you won't be churning inside. Your ulcers will heal because you're finding something to rejoice in, not something to be concerned and worried about all the time. And I'm not saying we don't have legitimate concerns. I'm saying let your perspective find the redemption of God in it all and you will be healthier and happier and more biblical. See the blessing, find the good. So John wraps up this point with a truth uh, about truth and love by summarizing the teaching of 1 John. He says, yes, you know the truth that lives in you. Now love one another because, you know, there's initial excitement about finding the truth that everybody else has found and having that truth in you now it comes down to the nuts and bolts of living together. He says, let that God's love that uh, sustain you through all of that. You know, the, the older woman from Moscow sitting next to the younger man from uh, the Ukraine, sitting next to the dentist, sitting next to the guy from the mission, sitting next to the lawyer, sitting next to the teacher, sitting next to black, sitting next to white, sitting next to you name it. He says, let love, God's love, Iron all of that out and get you to work together as one man serving the Lord in unity. It's Christian love. That's what it's all about. Now, moving to our second point quickly now, the context of defining, this is great, biblical love, right? He's saying this is all about love. Walk in this love. Now he's going to talk about, listen, withdrawing loving hospitality. He's talking about love. And now he's going to rebuke them for being what the world would call loving and supportive and tolerant. Right? He's saying, oh, no, no, no. Let me define what truth and love look like biblically. It thinks. It discerns. It protects. It has an obligation to look out for people. That's what love is. Here's what he says. I'll paraphrase. So we're in point two now. Love expressing itself in discernment. 
verse 7 paraphrase, many deceivers out there, many working against the truth that don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. They're not on his team. They deny God came in the flesh in a human body. These people are deceivers. They're against Jesus. Now here's the line. Watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. Their love is misplaced and misguided, as is a lot of our love. We're not thinking. Love protects, doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices only in the truth. So it thinks morally, right, before it acts. Instead of doing a good deed by opening their home and being loving to the bad guy, John says, oh, no, no, no. You're endangering yourself. And listen, he says, you're going to suffer loss. You're going to lose your reward by doing something like that. Now, what are they going to lose? Well, they're not going to lose their salvation, right? Because he says, watch out that you don't lose, which is quite possible for Christians to do, is lose reward. He says, watch out that you don't lose what you have worked for. Well, we didn't work for our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 it is a gift of God by faith that you are saved, not by working, lest someone boast like they earned it. It is a gift. So he's not saying, uh, watch out, you're going to lose your salvation. He's saying, watch out, because on the day you stand before Jesus, as all Christians will do, you will lose potential reward. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 says that we are building on the foundation of Christ in our lives, that when we stand before him, we will be evaluated. On top of our salvation, we'll get a reward for faithful stewardship of that which he's given us and calling and gifting in our Christian life. And if we blow it, which so many of us do, he says, you know what? You're going to lose some reward. That reward that could have been yours is not going to be yours. Well, because what? You started drinking again. Why'd you do that? Or you started doing this, or you were unfaithful. You committed adultery again. Yes, you're still saved. You don't lose your salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. God comes in, it's forever, it's a done deal. But he says, you lose reward. Now, how is this in the context of opening your home to false teachers in their context? Well, he says, listen, when you embrace false teaching, you will be ineffective for the Lord. So how could that work? Well, let's say you're a Christian and you embrace the false teaching of a me-centered gospel. You're still saved, but you think it's all about you. Oh, when you're sick, you just proclaim that you're not sick. And you use your faith to get better because God never wants you sick. And if you are sick, it's your problem. And you believe that. And you run around telling everybody else, Oh, you've got cancer? What kind of sin do you have? Where's your faith? And then when people die, it's because you didn't have faith enough. Oh, excuse me. You're losing reward because that's not true. So you don't lose your soul. But a me-centered gospel that says, hey, God just wants me to be rich. I hear that every Sunday. It is proclaimed today. That the gospel is all about making you happy, comfortable, and prosperous. 
you're spinning your wheels, you're stuck in the mud, that kind of behavior will make you ineffective, unproductive. You're wasting your time because that's not what the gospel's about. So of course you're going to lose reward. How about uh, extreme forms of Pentecostalism that's chasing signs and wonders? An entire Sunday was spent today talking about signs and wonders. No preaching of the word, signs and wonders. Feathers falling, gold dust on the hands, the whole nine yards. Look at this, my hand is growing. You know, wasted Sunday, gone. John says, you believed, you're going to heaven, but you're spinning your wheels with this false teaching. So of course you've got to guard your hearts because you lose reward. Sunday after Sunday, thinking it's all about you and gold feathers and, oh, or feathers and gold, whatever. You see, you have to be careful. There's a lot of stuff like that. Redefining what sexual immorality is. Oh, that's trendy today. Can we really just take a whole group of people and label that, oh, that's bad? Well, if you buy into that, you may not, you will not, if you were saved, lose your salvation, but you will lose reward because that's a lie. And you're teaching other people. And you're, you're telling somebody, you can be saved and live that way. That is a lie. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11 will call you on the carpet. Those who live this way will not inherit eternal life. But you're saying, oh, you know what? It's the 21st century. We've got to broaden it. And that's what he leads to. He says, anyone who runs out ahead, doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ, cannot know God. Interesting phrase here, folks. Running out ahead means to go beyond, to be progressive or advanced. So here's what the Gnostic teachers were saying. We're out in front. It's the first century. Hey, yeah, it didn't sound like being progressive uh, to us, but it really was. It's the first century, man. Come on. So they're out in front with this new insight, new age, new doctrines. And John says, when you're out advanced and progressing outside of where God is, you're way out in front of God and his truth. You're outside the circle of truth, and therefore you cannot know God. You've lost the intimacy with God. So he says, these guys have run out ahead. They've got some new truth. They're progressing, you know, but they are way out the bounds of what is uh, true as revealed from God. Here's a paraphrase of Westcott, famous commentator. Everyone who advances in bold confidence beyond the limits set to the Christian faith has excluded themselves from fellowship with God living outside his revealed truth. Whether it be sexuality or salvation, now there's big questions too about hell today in evangelical circles. Could God, the God of love, really condemn someone forever and ever in a place of flame and fire? That today is the new trendy progressive way of thinking. Oh no, it's the 21st century. In fact, while Pastor Jim was on a bench in Central Park preaching the gospel, you heard over and over again from this one man who said, it's the 21st century. As if to say, what you're saying, 
may have used to be true, but it's obsolete now and archaic and no longer binding on us because there's a new thing. There's a progressive way. There's an out front way. And John says, yeah, they come to you and they're saying, look, we're out front. It's the 21st century. And he says, they've removed themselves. They're ahead. They're so far ahead. They're ahead of Jesus. <laughs> and you can't be ahead of Jesus and do very well. Amen. amen. That was so necessary. <laughs> that amen. <laughs> I needed a breather. Anyway, listen to this quote. I'm almost done, by the way. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I don't mind. I still love you anyway. Listen, do you know what it's been like for me? Think about me. Two weeks with no preaching. Three Sundays. Two Wednesday nights. Nothing. Nada. I'm finishing early for what I want to do. Here's a quote. Yes, let's grow in our faith and understanding of Jesus. Yes, let's increase in progress in our methods and strategies to win the loss and nurture the church. Yes, let's be culturally relevant without progressing beyond the clearly defined limits of God's revelation to man. Amen? So with all of that laid out, John tells them firmly the action they need to take. Here's a paraphrase. If one of these guys, the progressive new thinker, comes into town and needs a place to stay, absolutely not. In fact, if you open your home and support him, you share in his wicked work, stumbling Christians and working against the faith. As Paul the Apostle would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, close your door, have nothing to do with them. Uh, love is accepting and supportive, but more than that, it always protects and rejoices with the truth. Now, I love this quote as well. Let me get through this. Love doesn't always roll over at every demand for support or welcome or affection or acceptance. Love's first obligation is to the truth. Love's next obligation is to protect, and when these two principles are jeopardized, love becomes a warrior and withholds, disciplines, and corrects. Now, parents know, in closing, what John is talking about here by closing the door in love. We must discriminate who we entertain in our homes, even among relatives, right? Think about it. We balance our concern for our relatives with our greater responsibility for our children. So we refrain from opening our homes to those of questionable character. Well, I've got little kids I'm raising in the Lord. Your abusive language, perverted lifestyles, or you're violent, or you drink too much, or I know this Thanksgiving is going to end with a 911 call. No, thank you. I'm sorry. Oh, you call yourselves Christian, and you're excluding us from Christmas and Thanksgiving. Yeah, I am in love because I've got a responsibility to my children and to my wife and to my marriage and my home. And John is saying, folks, you've got a responsibility to the truth. And love ends when you put, because of love, others in harm's way, 
Let me give you an example of that. Uh, perhaps somebody asks you to take in a troubled teen or a needy relative. How's that going to go with your two and three and four year old? What if you have a teenager and that teen is an alcoholic or a drug user? Where's the love? You got an extra room? You guys are Christians. Maybe you could get some truth into this kid. I've got a husband and a wife, and I've got a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and a four-year-old. Or I have a teen. Love just doesn't roll over and say, okay. Love thinks. Is somebody going to be in harm's way? How about this? You've got a relationship. It started out you're reaching out in a friendship, but you find that you're falling to pieces. You're compromising your own Christian life. Maybe the application of this truth, because we don't host or not host in our homes so much anymore, would be not enabling somebody who causes harm to you <laughs> or those you love. Now, John's not talking about withholding hospitality from all who are in, in error, but those who masquerade as true Christians. Secondly, John is not talking about withholding hospitality from all who are in error, but those who teach those errors that masquerade as true uh, Christianity. So maybe the general application for us would be this. Bad company corrupts good character and good morals. So let's be careful how we balance love and relating to bad company. I must not, in the name of love, assist in destructive behavior. Lastly, what about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who knock on our doors? A, if you feel convicted because you don't want anything to do with the false teaching, you are not well-versed in the scriptures, you don't have any prompting. You've got a few kids. You don't want them exposed to it. You've got some neighbors who know you're born again. You don't want them to have the wrong idea you're, you know, that you're associated with them. By all means, close the door in Christian love. You say, I'm born again. Jesus is Lord. I'll be praying for you. Have a nice day. Now, you have grace for that. But you also have grace to open the door. You are well-versed in the scriptures. You want to invite them in. You want to debate them. You want to help them. You want to correct them. You want to plant truth in their ears, into their hearts. You are not enabling them. They do their work with or without your engagement. And so the, the spirit of this passage prohibits enabling them. Now, if you want to disagree with me, fine. But I think there's grace in the prompting of the Holy Spirit to follow your convictions one way or the other. You will hear people from the pulpit say, absolutely never no, and absolutely always yes. We must reach out to them. I would say absolutely follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. It's okay to say no, and it's okay to say yes. But watch yourself when you say yes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your wonderful word. Who would think there's so much in 13 little verses? I would think that, but no. And I enjoy, Lord, knowing your truth, having your truth in our hearts, and getting to talk about it and, and be schooled by it. Father, we pray that this truth would get a hold of us and 
Speak into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.